Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with performer and rabbi Amakai Lau-Levy. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. So there's just, there's a lot of settling at the other end. Okay, so we have a few moments. Hmm? We have a few moments. Do, yeah. Will you let them know not to open this door right Or can I lock this? Because I'm... Oh, nobody will. Nobody will come in. Okay. Yeah, it's it, it's a okay. it's a sacred space until the interview ends. <laughs> That's right. They're all there. There's this, there's nobody to come nobody in. To come in. No. Okay. You're just seeing which angle looks best. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's put the real person in the chair. Gotcha. There's Paul. I'm actually gonna uh, that's fine by me. All right, we're connected and we're just you know, about ready I've to been start. Here before, I remember this tablecloth. Oh yeah, and possibly you, um, from okay. years ago. Something radio-wise. Well, that would make sense. We do do a lot of radio here. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Me neither. We can not try to figure that out later. We'll probably Chris won't, is ready to talk with you. So. Okay. Oh my hi. Hello? I will make sure that they are not. Why do I have is it is all this echo on their end? Turn it off. Perfect. It's oh okay, okay. All off. And um how about you, Nadine? I had left my phone outside. Okay, good. So do you hear your own voice right now? Um I'm hearing your voice? I am now. My voice. Can you hear me? Hopefully both. Yes, hello, Krista. Hello, Amakai. Good day to you. You too. Oh, nice. I am. Good to hear your voice. Yeah. You too. I'm glad we're doing this. I've been yes, looking. I'm pretending that you're sitting here in front of me. I in this want you to room. pretend that. I want you to know that I'm sitting here with my shoes off and my legs crossed. And, and I want you to, even though there are cameras, I want you to be in a really intimate space with me. I'm, I'm going to kick off my shoes as we speak. <laughs> okay. There are no requirements. I'm just just letting want you to get into the mood. <laughs> I, this is this is this is us being Moses at the at the burning exactly. bush. Shoes off. Which one of us is the burning bush? Both. <laughs> You're the one with the flaming hair. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, well, this is great. How are you? That's such a silly question. Okay, I'll do the. I'm going to ask you my. Uh, let's not talk about anything meaningful. Um, Tell me what you had for breakfast. I had leftovers, um, uh, sun chokes mm. that I made on Sunday. So I had a bit of leftover sun chokes with a bit of leftover um, um, acorn squash and a tomato. That is... I was activating my, my, my mother's frugal... Leftovers in the fridge. If you don't eat it now, when are you going to eat it? It's not your usual breakfast. Go for it. That is really a noble breakfast. So <laughs> I want to know. So I make sunchoke soup. What do you do with sunchokes? How do you cook them? All right. So this is a new recipe that I found. I um, 
Hold on, I'm ret- re- retrieving the file for my for my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> I um, cooked them briefly in just hot water, just to get them a little softer. Mm-hmm. Then removed them, and then sautéed shallots, scallions, and something else that I'm now forgetting. Um, And then added, um, took it off the heat, added uh, balsamic vinaigrette, like three Mm. tablespoons, Mm. and mixed that mixture of the balsamic and the sautéed shallots and olive oil and thing onto the sunchokes and just let it all... um, That sounds really good. It was really good. I tried... I tried it for the first time. It's a success. I'm, I'll send you the recipe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now everybody who listens to the unedited version will get the recipe too. So if, if you have to claim it that it's your grandmother's secret recipe or something, you have to do it now. No, it's like all recipe or Martha Stewart or something. I Googled okay. it. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we can go. I've got the thumbs up at this end. Okay, great. All right. Um, so I, you know, I asked this question of everybody in some version, but I'm really looking forward to your answer. Um, how you would start to describe the religious background of your childhood? Hmm. So my task on Fridays growing up in preparation for the Sabbath um, was to help my mother set the table, and she would bring out the best silver in China, and I would help set it. And my main task was to make sure that the flower arrangement at the center of the table is um, set and is beautiful. Mm. And that means I would go around in the neighborhood and pick flowers um, from either neighbors' front yards or for some general public areas. And I remember that as a as a a, a task that I loved. Mm. And I would get lost, and I would make little arrangements, and I would put them in the middle of the table, and that was my thing. And the reason why I think that is a great deal of my religious, spiritual education and upbringing and childhood is because um, only later did I realize that what I was involved with is a retrieval of the indigenous honoring of the Sabbath queen and the goddess, if you'd like, and mm. the notion of sacred time by creating an altar at home. Mm. Um, and this both spoke to my spiritual aesthetics, to very much being in my mother's house and in, um, I don't know where to put the queer exactly in there, but it certainly catered to that type of artistic Mm -hmm. sensibility. And people ask me today what I would do if I wouldn't be doing clergy work. And I I say I would probably um, open a very boutique-y type of florist shop (laughs) that would only function on Fridays. I love that. Okay. (laughs) Now, and and was it also later, as you grew older, that you understood... That you came from this thirty-nine generation of generations of rabbis from kind of an illustrious rabbinic dynasty was that history something that only made itself felt to you as you got older? Hmm. 
Um, on our living room wall, still is, it's a different wall, but still the living room, there's a photo of my grandfather, my father's late father, um, who was a rabbi and who uh, perished in the Holocaust. And his very distinct features and looking straight into the camera was really the icon in, the, in my childhood home both because of the martyrdom and because of the rabbinic legacy and because of the huge uh, light that his story and tragic end cast over us. And I think I can, I can almost place the moment when I sort of realized that this is the dynasty. And it uh, coincided with my uncle who, when I was in my early teens, was um, elected as Israel's chief rabbi mm-hmm. and and with whom I knew very well and I grew up with him. And, and I think at around that same time, in my early teens, this notion of the legacy and its responsibility became very um, trans... Um, that's what the word is. But at some point I realized mm-hmm. that this is this is who who we come from. Um, there is a debate whether it's 37, 38, or 39 generations... Um, one oh, of my, I wondered if I'd written that down incorrectly because I also saw those two numbers when I was yeah. Yeah, okay. no, it keeps popping up. Mm-hmm. Um, my 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 brother and I sort of joke that someone needs to sit down and really review this list <laughs> uh, and where exactly it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, my father created one type of chart. There's another. I'm hoping that within a few years this will be a really great project. Mm-hmm. But it's something in the 37 esque. And and you were you were also. That generation born of, in the aftermath of that, the 20th century's terrible convergence of um, Jewish history and kind of the darkest, uh, the darkest forces of human capacity and human history. I mean, your father... And his younger brother were liberated from Buchenwald in 1945. Is that right? By American mm-hmm. soldiers. Yeah. I went to Buchenwald. Um, in fact, I wrote about that several year, year back, back in the 80s when it was still in East Germany. And uh, they didn't mention Jews at Buchenwald. Did you know that? Mm. After the war in East Germany? Because uh, there were a lot of political prisoners there as well. There were a lot of communists imprisoned at Buchenwald. And the East Germans chose to um, kind of erase the Jews from the story, which I was so incensed by. Like, I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, have you ever been there to Buchenwald? I've not. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I've been to several of the camps. Mm-hmm. My, um, my father and mother went to Buchenwald for, I think, the 60th anniversary of liberation. I guess that would have been... 95 or 2000, 2005. I think 95 or 2005 yeah. they went perhaps more than once. And by that time, I think there has been some uh, rectification oh, of, sure. of the yeah. memory. Yeah, it was an Eastern um, thing. Yeah, no, they came back with, it was, my mother wrote about it, my father wrote about it. I've, I've been to, uh, to Ravensbrück, mm-hmm. uh, north of mm-hmm. Berlin, where my grandmother perished. Mm. Um, and I couldn't quite bring myself to go to Buchenwald, yeah. quite frankly. I yeah. Perhaps one day will. Um, how, how, do you have a sense of how that formed you, that history? Uh, 
Um, enormously. Enormously. And certainly there's a whole second generation um, narrative, um, you know, even the epigenetic uh, yeah. research that's not coming out about what we, we consciously and subconsciously have retrieved. Um, and I have to say, without being super dire, that one... One wonders these very, very days about what we have and what we have not learned from from the Second World War and from the Holocaust. And it's it's you know there there are swastikas on my street in New York City, hmm. and uh, so this brings up a lot of of baggage. But that aside, and, and I'll, I'll go in within for a moment. Um, from a very young age, I realized that this Holocaust story is part of my family story and part of my own story. Um, I think it informed in an earlier age my sense of commitment to the Jewish story and to the humanist story. And with the years, as my own questions of faith emerged, finding a way to reconcile faith and tragedy and looking at the um, theological constructs here um, was and is very important to me. I would say some of where I am theologically is because I've spent time asking those questions that so many philosophers and theologians have been doing. Mm -hmm. And the theodicy of, of this particular chapter. Um, I wrote uh, m my father's last years were mostly at home and he wanted to spend some time asking questions of faith that he had never dared or allowed himself to ask he was liberated um, at the age of uh, 18 and within a few months wanting to sort of autopilot of religious observance as a choice. And only in his late years, in his 80s, he, he had the ability to ask some of the faith questions. And I walked him through it and mm. interviewed him. And he called it the four questions, his four questions alluding to the Passover ritual. And the four questions were really one, you know, where are you? How could this happen? And he articulated them in very, very brave and beautiful detail. Where are you to God as a question to yeah. God? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, my father is no, was no deep theologian, and, and I'm aspiring, but not there yet. So there wasn't a lot of vocabulary around the heavy-lifting philosophical theological narrative, but there was a conversation for the first time between us, for sure, and to an extent for him, articulating some of those questions of where is the divine in the place of destruction. Hmm. And um, one of the most important answers or theories that I discovered doing this work with him was by a female theologian. I wonder if you've heard of her. Her name is Melissa Raphael. No. She teaches in London. And there's this thick anthology called Wrestling with God, which is theologians dealing with the questions of God and the Holocaust and disaster. She's the only woman in this which entire Which is also the corpus. language of um, Israel and uh, the image of how the, right, of Jacob becoming Israel yeah, and wrestling exactly, with God. Yeah, exactly, the wrestling, yeah. Yeah. the night long, yeah, the nocturnal yeah. wrestle, which is funny. I was just talking about that today. It's a story that was told in a synagogue near you this, this weekend. Mm. Um, M Melissa Raphael writes about the Shekhinah, the divine presence, and her response is that while God did die in Auschwitz, the God that Rubinstein and other philosophers claimed died there, 
that God that died there is the patriarchal, either-or, conditional God that we grew up with. Almost one would say the biblical God did die there. And the fracture is yet to be fully understood. But another face of the divinity was shining and rose there, and that is the face of the Shekhinah, the divine kindness, Mm -hmm. the feminine divine, who manifested when people were kind to each other, whoever they were. And um, so she grounds this in both mystical and philosophical theory and in many, many interviews with survivors, primarily women. And that notion that some of the patriarchal divinity perished during those harsh years of the 20th century, but another type of divinity slowly emerging, which is not binary and which is the long-lost feminine voice in Judaism and in other religions, that spoken speaks very powerfully to me Mm. and to where we are now, this paradigm shift. And it didn't exactly convince my father because he is of the patriarchy in many ways, but something was able to soothe him in this theoretical construct. So so, like the the notion of kindness, that the notion that there are no answers of where's the big picture and why does, why do bad things happen to good people and and who knows? He's written a book about it, and he's thought and talked so much about the Holocaust and its aftermath. But we're not really going to know what he really, really went through, yeah. uh, nor his younger brother. And so the questions are immense. And the, he chose to remain orthodox, to remain pious. Um, you asked about my childhood memories of, of, of religion and other than flowers for Sabbath and other beautiful gestures. My father would pray at home in the mornings. He would put on his tefillin, his leather phylacteries, and his prayer shawl, and he would drink a glass of tomato juice simultaneously and glimpse uh, 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 glimpse at the morning paper. He was a journalist. And my memory was my father having this sort of like religious ritual at home at the dining room table while multitasking with tomato juice and a newspaper that later on became CNN. <laughs> and I mocked him for many years. I remember as a teen, I said, like, really? Like, like, you're not praying. This is like, what is this? It's a checklist. And he would sort of, yes, yeah, this is, a, this is like my check to, you know, hitch, mm. you know, check the God. And only later, and certainly after his death, when I inherited his prayer shawl that I now put on every morning, I realized that this was his way of, of sticking to discipline and committing to a path of persistence, even if the big answers and the big questions are not quite clear. Hmm. Somewhere you um, have spoken, and, and, and you know whether you had said these words or not, this is what one thing that comes through in your life and uh, your, your um, work... Um, your calling, you said, you, is this calling to serve those who are fringe and other. And as you're speaking about um, the history uh, that your family knew personally, um, it's it's clear that that flowed into this, and so did um, your sexual identity and the fact that I mean, this is such a striking story that when it came time for your bar mitzvah. The Torah portion included the teaching um, about homosexuality as as an abomination. 
And I mm-hmm. wonder, I wonder if um, even at that time, um, you know, if 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 you were at all conscious at that time of this planting a calling in you. It's so hard to retrieve one's mindset during those angstful teen years. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this memory of sitting at the blue desk that I had during those years between 12 and 16 and writing a short story about the scapegoat. And what happens if the Leviticus story, which is part of my bar mitzvah portion, uh, the middle chapters of Leviticus, what if the guy whose job it is to take the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement and toss the scapegoat off into the wilderness, what if the guy decides not to do it and he's just attached to the goat and he doesn't want to send the goat off. And um, somewhere there's a draft of that short story later on. Many, many years later became a play. But in thinking about it later, I think that that was my way of asking the questions that I dared not ask about Mm. the fact that by the age of 13, I knew who I was attracted to. I knew that it was an abomination and it was a taboo that was not even to be spoken. I was in New York City at the time, in Manhattan, and so I was exposed to uh, a great deal of opportunities. This is early 80s. And um, writing about the scapegoat and about transgression and what if you don't deal with the sacred trash as you're supposed to but let it go was my sort of crafty way of, of asking myself, what if? What if it's not? what I grew up on? What if it's not the either or of good, bad, kosher, treif, abomination, sanctity? What if there's something else here? Um, I don't recall and I doubt I had any role models to think about this out loud with. Mm-hmm. Um, not until my later teens and my, my 20s. But I think th- those years planted the seeds for my somehow with grace and 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 despair, I guess, ask questions that were hard enough to push me over the edge in some way and to leave, to um, to understand that my option is either to stay within the familiar structure that I grew up with, with very clear religious and um, sort of societal boundaries, uh, or dare risk the fact that there is another paradigm here, that there's another option where I'm not an abomination, that either the Bible is right and God is right and the Torah and the laws, I know it is right, and I'm really wrong and therefore I'm really screwed and I'm <laughs> this is not going to be good. <laughs> or actually what I'm feeling doesn't feel unholy, it doesn't feel messy. And, and so maybe the yeah. Torah is not right. Well, and and I remember feeling at yeah. some point like there was this thing thinking, okay, one day I'm going to die and I'm going to stand before the throne of glory. And there's this one option where God's going to look at me and say, why didn't you follow the rules that all the rabbis told you? Eh, you go to hell. <laughs> or the other option was that God's going to look at me and burst out laughing and say, wow, why didn't you follow your heart? And I thought that that latter option is much worse. So it seems to me that 
the arts and and your your another identity. I mean, right, we all what is it? We contain multitudes, right? You are you were an art, artist, an artistic person. That this was this became your way of staying with these questions, um, and also. I mean, you just said you kind of you left, you you walked out of that Judaism in which you had been raised. But it seems to me that the arts also allowed you to continue to to be Jewish, right? You were you were still actually loving Judaism, even if you were doing something mm-hmm. completely different with it and its fundaments. Yeah, I would say I would say. Um, what initially kept me tethered in a, in a holy way was storytelling and the understanding that while I might not sign up for the religious practice and for the faith in a God and in a legal religious system as is, I was attached and mesmerized by the body of storytelling mm-hmm. and by the tradition of storytelling, whether it's the Talmud or the Midrash, the Jewish legends, the, the Kabbalistic tales. And being in a, in a situation where I'd sit around a table with a bunch of people and we'd open one of the books and we'd talk about any of the stories, Jacob wrestling or you have it. And then the permission to use the storytelling as a pretext and as a context for our own text, for our own lives, was mesmerizing. I, I realized that at some point in my late teens and the, the knowledge that I'm part of this relay race of this lineage of people who for thousands of years are contemplating and interpreting the text and that I too am invited and permitted to continue the interpretation on the margins that then become the text. That was what first kept me interested in my early 20s, the notion of just opening the pages of Talmud, Mm. whether I have a, you know, beanie on my head and I'm keeping the Sabbath or not. And that eventually led into the interest in a more personalized spiritual vocabulary. When, when did you, how old were you when you founded um, Storytelling? Storytelling, I was about 28, 29. Okay. So this, was, this kind of led to that eventually. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I would say, um, you know, I, I uh, we were in New York for four years as a teen. My father was um, a consul general here, and I was exposed to American culture and English and, you know, the decadence of the West. And then came back to Jerusalem at age 16, did not find my, my myself in what was going on in many ways, and started asking many questions about religion and politics and, and uh, sexuality and identity. Um, I dropped out of high school, went to a yeshiva instead and started doing graphic design and Mm. drove my parents insane. Um, And then decided to enroll in the IDF, in the army, and I went as a paratrooper and later on as a medic. And it was in the army that I I seriously questioned Jewish law and began to craft my own path, mostly out of comfort than than philosophy, but that came next. And... um, it was right after the, the, the army service in the early 90s that I began really exploring more spiritual realities that were not the ones I grew up with, mm-hmm. um, whether they were uh, beyond Judaism and within. And um, I would say a really defining moment for me was in uh, 95 when the Israeli prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, was shot 
on a Saturday night in November, and I was living in Jerusalem on a rooftop apartment. Um, and at that time, I was studying in a in a very pluralistic study center where Jews and non-Jews and men and women and were all studying together. And the focus of that year for me was the binding of Isaac, the story mm-hmm. of how Abraham is taking his son Isaac up the mountain as a an offering that ends up not happening. Um, and as the assassin who shot Prime Minister Rabin was apprehended, he spoke to the cameras and said, um, God spoke to me. I, I did this as a religious calling to save the land of Israel and the legacy of the Jewish people. And I stood there on my roof and thinking, oh my God, this is the binding of Isaac part two. This is the sequel. And this Isaac, this Yitzchak was not spared by a ram or an angel. This mm. Yitzchak so was, Rabin was killed. So Rabin was Isaac in this story. I mean, that's his name. That he is Yitzchak, Isaac. Mm-hmm. Uh, and President Clinton made an allusion to that story in his eulogy. Mm-hmm. But for me that night exemplified so strongly that the, the assassin used the Bible, used Jewish commentary, used metaphor to justify his values and his murder. And he, like me, comes from a religious background where we were, we were invested with the literature. The entire hard drive was handed to us. And he made a decision based on his knowledge. And I realized that so many of my fellow Jews in Israel and abroad don't have the hard drive. They're not aware that we've got these stories and values and tools to grapple with and make decisions. And because of that, it's going to the fundamentalist right and it's going to the extreme and it's going to the either or. And I wanted to be helpful in driving the car to another direction, using our story and our biblical and post-biblical materials to not be a vehicle for murder, but a vehicle for peacemaking. And I realized that storytelling, the stories we tell, how we tell them, when we choose to tell them, that is what's going to determine our well-being and our future. So, and I was in my early 20s, and I thought, I'm going to become a storyteller. Okay. <laughs> but but you didn't just pick up the stories for peacemaking. I mean, that may have been the ultimate goal. But you also wanted, you wanted to, re, to renew the drama of the stories, it seems to me, the dynamism of the stories. I mean, and even here again is the, where the artist of you came in. I mean, there's, you know, as you said, what if, what if this is actually theater? Um, and actually, you're working with best-selling literature, and there's already an audience there, but it's a bad performance. Um, and so, you know, there's something very passionate and playful also, um, as serious as it, as it is, too, in the way you picked this up and wanted to transmit it to others. Absolutely. I think the playful is, is key, because mm-hmm. so much of the religious narrative and, and situation is so heavy. Mm-hmm. And um, and at some point, I was interested in storytelling, and I started being interested in theater and in drama because I was working in a high school with kids who couldn't care less about any of us, but they did care if you got them on their feet and you started doing some drama games. Mm-hmm. So I, I, understand, I began understanding the role of masks, uh, both literal and figurative, and how the as-if of story and the and the imagine of storytelling and myth allows our soul and our mind to interact with possibilities that just plain facts and 
legal thinking as opposed to more legendary thinking doesn't. So I began playing with the notion of story and storytelling and playfulness. And then when I, um, I moved to New York in 97 for a theater project, and I had this big aha moment sitting in a synagogue on Saturday morning and being at a, a worship event where the, the main event is the weekly telling of the Torah, this ritual that began 2,500 years ago where the scriptures are told out loud from a scroll chanted in Hebrew, and it's a weekly rerun, and it goes on and on and on. And, <laughs> right. and, and But I was sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I'm entrusted in this congregation with adult education, with Bible class. I have like a dozen people on a Wednesday night, most of them seniors, most of them bored. And I you know, make it come alive because I think the Bible is a great text for us to think about our lives. But here's prime time. The Jews are in the pews. There's about 500 people here on a Saturday morning for an hour. Instead of being invigorated by the storytelling, they're just being chanted to. Mm-hmm. And it's Hebrew. They don't understand it. And it's long and it's, it's, it's dire. So I went researching what is the history of this ritual, this, this Torah service ritual, and discovered that it is indeed one of the oldest storytelling ceremonies in continuity on the planet. Mm-hmm. It is Judaism's oldest educational device of sharing the tribal story with the community once a week. And that until a thousand years ago, every time it was done, it was done in split screen. You had the chanter in Hebrew and the translator in vernacular. Hmm. And the translator was not just translator. He was an interpreter and a storyteller. Um, And there are records of this tradition happening in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in later writings. And for a bunch of reasons, this tradition died out a thousand years ago. And I thought, how fantastic to bring it back to bring back the live translator, to bring back the MC, to wrestle with the biblical in ways that will uh, be meaningful in the 21st century and not to take it verbatim, but figure out how the translation can become a theatrical, dramatized vehicle to engage people in the wrestling with the text. Mm. And so it's an old tradition that I decided to revive. Um, the word storytelling, combination of Torah and storytelling, came down from heaven while I was sitting on the beach in L.A., and wrote itself on the beach, and I thought, hmm, great. Um, in 98, I think, or some version of that happened, and then I took upon myself the audacious goal of starting a nonprofit company that will recreate the ways we tell the sacred stories. And how um, was um, Hadassah Gross born? It was kind of a drag character you created, Sabbath Queen. Wow, you've done your research. A la uh, Zsa Gabor. Who just who just yes. died? Rest in peace. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. rest in peace, Jaja. Yeah. I read the obituaries with extra care. Hadassah loved her. Well, I thought of you. I thought of you while I was. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great compliment. Jaja was indeed a role model. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's this there's this holiday once a year called Purim, which is the Jewish sort of carnival where the scroll of Esther is recited in synagogues and people put on masks and drink. It's very carnival and it has indeed very ancient Persian pagan roots and sort of became Jewishized. I, of course, loved the Purim since I was a child. Um, there are photos of me doing drag at the age of four. Um, but and it it's wasn't called drag, I'm sure. It was called Purim costume. I became <laughs> okay. my cousin Rachel. Right. And then I became a yeah. Russian piano teacher. And <laughs> I, there's, there's, there's great photos. Mm-hmm. But I, um, yeah, you are allowed. This is, it's, it's, it's the topsy-turvy. And the older I got, I was interested in what Purim has to offer us as grown-ups. 
in this masking and unmasking, and also politically, Purim is a very interesting and complicated conversation about racism and about the ethnic and the other within us. Right. Um, it needs a couple of drinks and a mask to handle these skeletons in our closet. And so I became interested in Purim as, as a way to do theater and ritual uh, context for complicated conversations and joy. And um, one Purim in the late 90s, I was MC of some kind of an Esther scroll event, and I had one vodka too many, and Hadassah Gross emerged out of my head like Athena <laughs> with a full name. That was her name, Hadassah Gross. I knew she was Hungarian. I knew she was a widow, and she was a Kabbalah teacher. Mm-hmm. Was, she, I don't remember. was she a rabbi's wife also? Yes. Okay. So, so you said you weren't yes. going to be a rabbi, but you could be a rabbi's wife. Exactly. She she was, in fact, the widow of a rabbi. Okay. And again, this is, at the time, this was just fun drag. You know, I was, I was in New York. I was hanging out with the radical fairies and other interesting queer spiritual groups where drag was sort of okay in many ways of fluidity uh, in between spirituality and joking and mm-hmm. ritual and, and, and shows. And Hadassah emerged. I don't remember the content of the first couple of shows because I had all those too many vodkas, which are the <laughs> libations she required. But people showed me the videos and what she said, and it was pretty profound. It was very interesting mystical teachings mm. that I had no idea that I knew. And so she at first emerged only once a year and then emerged a few more times because it became clear that she is not me. And that this is something between channeling and performance. And it's something about the feminine and it's something about the divine. And it's something about the neither or. And audiences were on the one hand just amused, but on the other hand were invited into a ritual space. And that in between, it's not serious, it's not play, it's not drag, it's not not, it's lighting candles became a very sacred place. And that ambiguity for me and for what Hadassah created was very profound and, and, and radical, I would say. Mm. Um, she served an important role in my own coming to terms with being out. Um, she had an important role with my father's dealing with me coming out. And, um, How was that? Even the fact that it... Was that- um, well, you know, at some point as Hadassah evolved, um, it sort of became obvious that she was a Holocaust survivor. This wasn't part of her CV at the very beginning of her career. But at some point she came out as a Holocaust survivor and as the widow of not one but six illustrious rabbis. <laughs> um, the first two being brothers and the others were cousins, all from the Gross family. So her bio kept emerging as did her wardrobe that became fancier. Um, and at some point there was an Israeli newspaper that interviewed um, did a big piece on Hadassah and interviewed my father who said, um, they asked him, what do you think about Hadassah? And he said, um, she has great legs. <laughs> had you <laughs> ever had a conversation I, with your father about this? A little bit. So after that, I said, really? Like, and, and he and I sat and he didn't really, really talk about it, but I think he got something about how audacious it was. And because mm-hmm. it was so audacious, it was almost manageable. And it was something about the mm. humor that allowed him to laugh with me at mm. this at this phenomena. So the, the, there was something That's very lovely. healing in what she lovely. brought. Yeah. And then at some point I realized that I don't need 
and I don't want to be the rabbi's widow, um, I actually could take the heels down and stand on stage and <laughs> use the stature she gave me to be me, mm-hmm. minus the mask and mm-hmm. the big wig. And so I uh, <laughs> graduated from being the rabbi's widow to uh, being the rabbi. Being the rabbi. So so <laughs> when, you, when you were ordained, the Times of Israel wrote... Um, with an eye on Jewish Jewish continuity, maverick spiritual leader goes mainstream. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it, it does sound like, uh, like it, it, in many of those years between you know your bar mitzvah and and the time you were actually ordained or decided to to get on the path to becoming a rabbi. It, it, you would not have imagined that that's where you were heading, even though I, I also sense that you never stopped loving Judaism. Um, I think wrestling, as you said, the story about Jacob is mm-hmm. very apt. It's a love, it's not a love-hate, it's a love and deep understanding of the deep repair and rebranding that is in my opinion, needed, not just rebranding in the terms of of text, but in the the deep tissue of what it is that thousands of years later the Jewish people carry and what gifts and treasures we still have to work through and share with the world. So I feel a deep love and a deep sense of honoring the legacy that I was born into and the richness that I'm so privileged to have inherited and been taught and with that, the responsibility for looking at where it might not be living up to the values and and responsibilities and promises that are part of our DNA and what's needed in this new time, in this new, th- these new days and this, this new paradigm. But Judaism, I believe, must evolve, is evolving to retain its particularity while being radically universal, which is what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and some of the other prophets are clearly talking about, Mm. and that some of the Judaic survivalist narrative that has taken hold is sticking to a binary, to an either-or, fear-based, for very good reasons, and not allowing it us to transcend and become open in ways that are more love-driven and a little more perhaps appropriate to where we are right now. So, you know, when you use language like rebranding, uh, I think it it could be heard as kind of cynical or, you know, dumbing things down, um, t- you know, turning to consumerist uh Impulses, and I and I don't and I don't think you. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't it doesn't actually sound that way when it comes out of your mouth. But I think a cynic would hear it that way. Um, it, to me, it kind of points back at the artist in you. I mean, you you said at some point that you once went around saying that artists are the new rabbis, and and now and then you you transition to rabbis are the new artists. Um, and so, like, if you if I look at the well, maybe let's call it the tagline of Lab Shul. Would you call Lab Shul, would you call it a congregation? 
a synagogue? Yes. What would you? Yeah. No, okay. it's a congregation. It's your congregation, We're, and you are the yeah. spiritual leader, and the founding mm-hmm. spiritual leader. So it's a everybody friendly, artist driven, God optional, all ages. And I just tell me a little bit about why those four phrases. Uh, what and they missing is pop up, by the way, which What's is missing? not there, but pop up, pop up, pop up. So, so we're 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 transient, okay, um, physical wise. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, Labshul emerged as a community, as a congregation, out of the storytelling theater company. So, the theater company was founded in '99. All these wonderful artists and and bright spirits and friends and fans joined us, and over the years, we created these ritual theater events and this Torah storytelling phenomena and some Sabbath feasts and Yom Kippur experiments and lots of interfaith myth- mythic moments. And at some point we looked around and said, this is not about theater. This is not a theater company. This is a community. And this is a congregation perhaps. And I was moving from the Hadassah and artist into perhaps rabbi and spiritual leadership in that way. And um, after a year of focus groups and conversations with people who were involved, Labshul um, came about. And the taglines really look at what does it mean for us to reimagine what is the role and the purpose of certainly religion and, and, and the Jewish story in the 21st century. So everybody friendly means that we're really not checking who you are based on dissent or consent on blood or belief. You're here as a seeker. Welcome. Jew, Jewish, other blended <laughs> families, people from all paths, welcome. And there's absolutely no distinction in any way of any participation in the community. Um, God optional is a tricky term that I, we, I came up with because for so many people, the word God is so off-putting. And the notion of prayer or, or a, a transcendental being, deity, that we grew up with in the Hebrew schools and in the synagogues of our youth is not really speaking to who we are. And the term and the word are both misleading. So God optional is our way of saying agnostic friendly, atheist friendly. It's a metaphor. If you truly connect to prayer, yay. If not, it's a meditation. We translate all of our liturgy in ways that are gender neutral, hierarchy Less and uh, God optional, hmm. and that's rather radical and speaks very, very powerfully to people of a lot of different backgrounds who are just invited into the contemplative, into the spiritual presence, understanding that our liturgy is indeed poetry mm-hmm. and it's metaphor mm-hmm. and it's inviting us to be present. Um, we use a lot of music, a lot of theater, the storytelling, the storytelling technique of telling stories at the core of what we do. And artists are involved with every single step of how we build ritual and how we do um, everything, how we structure our communal life. So artist-driven is very important. Uh, Pop-up is primarily because we're in New York City and real estate is insane and we cannot afford a building. But that's also a philosophy. We go from wineries to museums to galleries in Brooklyn or Harlem or downtown, and we use the Internet a lot. And we're gauging how people want to have a sacred container, but not necessarily in the houses of worship of yore. 
sort of a different framework, allows us to sit differently, to bring music differently. We use screens for liturgy instead of books, which I know is very popular in the Christian world, but is only sort of emerging in the Jewish world. And by sitting in circles, as opposed to in pews, we build an entire different worship energy. So that's the pop-up. Um, did I cover all the yeah. the taglines? Uh, yeah. They, they keep uh, changing. Oh, they do. All ages, I, <laughs> I mean, get that. Yeah, no, it's um, great. Yeah. Right. And, and the experimental is, we're a lab. We really are a lab. That's the fun part. And this mm-hmm. is when I came up with the name Lab Shul, it was in, <laughs> was in a, a nod to John Dewey <laughs> and saying, we're a lab. We're going to try this out mm-hmm. and we're going to get some things wrong. We're going to change this or that. And we're not beholden to the tradition as is. We're beholden to be carriers of of the sacred. And shul is sort of this Yiddish-German word for synagogue, but really yeah. for the one-room schoolhouse, yeah. which is what it was. So it's sort of an intimate, cozy place to try things out. Yeah. So, you know, there's so many things we could talk about, and I, I have so many notes about, you know, High Holidays Boot Camp and the meaning of repentance, and maybe we'll get to some of that. I... I I think it would be good to dwell with, um, you know, this moment we inhabit. You know, we're speaking in the wake of, as a new political reality begins, as the political reality kind of around the world is in a very unsettled state and um, lots of surprises, lots of, I think think unsettled is the way a lot of people feel, all, all around on every side. So maybe kind of focus on how, how I kind of draw you out on hmm. theology and faith and community in the context of now. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do have to say, and I haven't seen you quoting Heschel anywhere, although probably you have. Um, I keep thinking of this line of uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was also at Jewish Theological Seminary, where you went and were ordained in the conservative tradition. Um, this line of Heschel, in a free society, some are guilty while all are responsible. Um, and I have to say that when I look at like the lab shul, I look at the website and some of the things you're talking about, some of the things people are talking about, um, and I feel this, I feel this collectively that, um, that there's a lot of really, um, I would say healthy, uh, I mean, there are a lot of reactions around, but I think something I see that I find to be hopeful is a lot of reflection on one's own responsibility, even while there may be a lot of confusion about that and mixed feelings. Um, Mm -hmm. You wrote this beautiful reflection on words. Um, Moving into the high holy days, is that, is that recent? Was that, that was was on words? Our private and public words matter a lot in this world of so many words. Do you know, is it, was that not you? It sounds familiar. I can't remember from it's, it's either very recent, something I wrote last week, or it is part of the. I, I think it's very recent. Yeah. So yeah. It must be something I think I wrote last week as mm-hmm. I was. Um, but you were. It was my you were, father's. It was the second anniversary of my father's death, and I was at the cemetery, and um, my uncle and brother and family insisted on chanting many, many, many psalms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was thinking, wow, we're chanting all these psalms so that we don't talk. Mm. 
and what, what are the words we need and what are the words we don't need and what are the rituals that are healthy and vibrant and which ones need a bit of help and where are we at this moment that what we need are healthy words and healing words and spaceful words and not just recycling the old words. Yeah. There's a, there's a transition. Um, but I think but, both, know, right? Aren't you saying, I mean, both? It, no, it's absolutely yeah. both. I mean, you, I mean, you I mean, wrote I'm, in that we chant the ancient words, as did our ancestors before us, fragile, human, hopeful, honest in our return to this place, this time, this word on our journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the words are the black box that contains so many of the ancestral aspirations and truths and also baggage that needs to be checked. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an evolution. Not everything that we've inherited is worthy of being passed on, like trauma and like memories and like values that have evolved. Um, part of the reason why I'm not an Orthodox Jew, but a flexidox or polydox and otherwise Jew, um, and not just Jew, is that I do believe in evolution not just of our species and the world, but of concepts. And if the Bible and the Jewish values that have sustained my people for thousands of years believe that women were subservient and that sexuality was of a specific type and that uh, types of worship included slaughtering animals, we've evolved. That's not where we are. So we need to read some of those sacred words as metaphor, as bygone models, as... Um, invitations for creativity and for sort of the second meaning and the second naivete here that still retrieves this text as useful Mm. and these narratives Mm. as holy, not as literal. I think that is, of course, the, the, the conversation between so many of us of different religions who are struggling with our brothers and sisters who choose to read things literally and speak for a biblical truth that is unalterable, where we, some of us think that there is room here for creativity, for sacred metaphor and change. Um, I, I, you know, until a few months ago, I think many of us, I remember sitting with you and the wonderful team of people you assembled to talk about love and what, you know, in the middle of the election campaign and the toxicity and what we need and who imagine where we would be now. Um, and, and the sense is that there are many of us who are thinking progress and thinking human dignity and thinking the evolution of our people to enable so many different voices to be at the table, which was not the case. And now I don't think there's a setback per se, but it seems like the, you know, to talk in very sort of crass terms, the patriarchal narrative has reared up its head against this sort of neo-patriarchal, post-ethnic, universalist voice. And um, we're not there yet. We're not there yet for those days of, of dignity and equality and radical justice that Heschel and Dr. King and, and um, so many of our leaders then and now are uh, hoping for. And that's sort of shocking. Uh, in in so many ways, I remember, you know, the amazing things that Ruby Sales shared with us, and to yeah, think of where she was and where she is now. Yeah. Such civil. I mean, here we are. Oh my gosh, again. Mm-hmm. So it, it gives me the humility of knowing that the clock of change is 
slow and the pendulum is steady mm-hmm. and it's one step further and two steps backwards and that the arc of justice is on its way and we're not there yet which is frustrating but also demanding yeah. to not give up you to know, not we get tired to not lose yeah. right and we weren't you know I mean you and I could talk about an hour for an hour but I mean we weren't there before either and weren't quite as conscious as we should have been about how many people were left out and how many things mm-hmm. had been happening that flew in the face of these values yeah. Right. I mean, if we didn't, you know, until cell phone cameras came along, you know, even the most. Uh, well, this is, this is a complicated discussion, but I, yeah. and I also think there's something. There's a real kind of natural human pattern at work right now, which is, which is, change does happen at different paces for different people, and there's, you know, mm-hmm. there's kind of a classic reaction. But it's a reaction to change that is underway, you know. So in that sense, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised, yeah. Um, because the the magnitude of the changes, of mentality, of behavior, of values, of imagination, you know, they're vast and they're happening on so many different levels right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I I want to share with you the the story that really came to me right after. The elections and I've used a lot since it's this Talmudic parable about a ship that is sailing and there are many cabins and one of the people on the cabins uh, on the lower floor decides to dig a hole in the floor of his cabin and does so and sure enough the ship begins to sink and the other passengers suddenly discover what's going on and see this guy with a hole in the floor and he said they what are you doing and he says well it's my cabin i paid for it and down goes the ship and it's a story in the talmud that talks about human responsibility in the jewish sense that we're all on the same ship together but i've been wrestling with it and talking about it from the day after the from november 9th talking about what does it mean for us to be that person and where have we been only focusing on my cabin and mm-hmm. me, 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 and where are we not part of a we? Yeah. And how is that true of every single one of us and how that is true in some ways of America and how the narcissistic, <laughs> yeah. um, me-focused, insight-driven, my own needs and aspirations in this age have taken so hold of us, that the sense of public and communal and responsible for other, including the limping and the weak yeah. at the edges of our camp, in some way has not been looked at as religious traditions have taught us to. And as the, yeah. the Bible again and again reminds us, remember the other, remember the other, you are the other. And yeah. so in some way, I think the, the cabinet and the presidential reality of now is this me narcissist focus in in not just in a negative way um grown large and it's a me that is we versus them yeah it's very neo-tribal in that sense yeah. and it comes from a place of taking care of myself taking like I'm, I'm i'm sorry like as someone told me you know i went canvassing in ohio on the week before the elections and door to door and realize at some point that it shouldn't be door-to-door, it should be face-to-face. 
not just hmm. this campaign or that campaign. Let's have conversations. Right. And every once in a while I had conversation, and there was this one guy in his 50s, white, unemployed, mad, who said to me, listen, I get it. I get the misogyny. I get the the anti-everything, I'm sorry that you're gay and scared, etc. I know that it's not the Chinese who took my job, it was the computers, but I need a job. And he promised me a job, I need a job. Yeah. So it was the sense of me, it's like my cabin, my floor, my needs, and I'm not gonna deal with the we right now. Yeah. And I think we are now being awoken up to say, no, my friend, the me and the we gotta go hand in hand here. Mm-hmm. And this is what I feel the moment that we are, are being aroused to understand in this postmodern reality is how do we get to be more me than we've ever been before with human dignity and possibility and still be part of a we. And then the question is, what is the we? Because the boundaries of what is we are shifting. Yeah, what is the we and how do we... <laughs> how do we weave that together right right i mean how, how so, do we how do we make that evident i mean you know you in terms of your use of language that's artistic and poetic and playful you know you use the prefix re a lot you know reboot um yes which is which is also in the name of a really interesting network of jewish innovators of which you're part but you also use that language mm-hmm. in terms of worship and tradition reboot repent obviously but you'll you know make that return out return and also you, you use re-love so i want you to talk to me about that one well real love is thanks to you oh good thank- <laughs> it, it's absolutely thanks to you i don't know if you saw the booklet that i sent you that we printed for the high holy days if not i'll make sure that you get it i'm not sure i did see it something um, gotten lost in our piles here yeah please yeah, resend I'll, I'll- it Okay. I'll gladly send it. The, okay. the meeting we had uh, back in the summer was so important where you basically put on the table the notion of love as a civic virtue and as a as a tool in our toolbox that we as individuals and as a community need to own. And I, I remember saying, being, I remember being so inspired and saying in the closing circle there in Minneapolis that I, I really want to bring this to my community. And I went back and I thought that the key term the key uh, uh, instruction, one would say, in, in the Torah and in the Jewish biblical and post-biblical reality is ve'ahavta, thou shall love. Hmm. And it's thou shall love the divine and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself and other. And it's not love, it's ve'ahavta, and you will love. And it's that and that really interested me. How do we move beyond the autopilot, you know, I love you, mwah, 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 to like, no, radical love, real mm. love, deep love. And the real love came as an, in, as an invitation for us to step beyond the banal and the known notion of loving the divine human self. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. really, and go more radically into what love means. Um, and I spoke about it throughout the High Holy Days as as a pre-election moment of how can we move from fear-based to love-driven? How can love be something that helps us build the small, intimate communities that we are now yearning for more than ever? And how can we be there for each other even when the other is so other? Mm. Mm. And that became such an important trope Um there's a cute little pun at the very end of, of those, that whole season. So the, the, the Hebrew letter that comes before the word love, ve, is a vav, 
V-A-V, which is that and word, but it also could be read as a hook. And so my final pitch was that we need that hook. We need to hook ourselves on that re and give ourselves the chance to re-imagine love. And then someone said to me, all you need is vav. All you need is that, that, <laughs> right. that, that, that and. Yeah. And um, I have to be really, you know, this is an opportunity to mm. really thank you for that inspiring circle because mm. that has inspired me and so many others to take this instruction of love, this verb, very, very deeply mm. as a theological and as an interpersonal invitation that with everything that's going on right now is a guiding light. Mm. It, for me, it's so easy to to descend into animosity and either or. And um, you know i'm I'm in the middle of a email volley with someone in my vast family who's a lovely, lovely, lovely gentleman who sent an email around to the family saying that he voted for Trump. And I couldn't understand the level of rage that came out of me in wanting to communicate with him. And I thankfully have the ways of containing and curbing my enthusiasm and waiting 24 hours before I send some emails. <laughs> and so I waited to send him a very short note that said, I'm so glad we're honoring our past ancestors together. It seems like we can't quite agree on the past, on the present and the future. And I'm trying to think, how do we use love? How do we go face-to-face -face in difficult conversations with those who see the world so differently than some of us and whose values are coming from the good place of me and preservation and even have a we in mind, but it's not as expansive and radical as the we that I'm thinking of and some of us are. How do we use love? And really, that's the question you challenged us with, and I... I'm sure that that's. I'm sure it's keeping you up at night. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I know think, it's keeping me up at night. Yeah, and it is something we. It's like a. It's we have to walk this right we, because there aren't answers to that question you're posing. I mean, I, I was thinking also at the very beginning when you talked about a new. A new sense of God being born after the Holocaust. The kind kindness. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think love is also. It, it sounds so grand and it sounds like it's something you have to feel. And this love we have to practice now and learn learn to practice is so much more practical than that. And mm -hmm. Yeah. It's daily. It's mm -hmm. daily practice. It's no it's so it's ironic to me now. I'm in my late forties and I'm a and I'm a father and I'm a rabbi and I'm looking at my life and how it's evolving and who knows what else. And I sit every morning for a few moments Wrapped up in my father's prayer shawl, I meditate and write in my journal. I rarely use any of the liturgical texts. And what it's about is discipline. It's just daily discipline. It's a workout. And it's the workout for gratitude. And it's a workout for, you know, what Heschel called radical amazement and wonder. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just an exercise in meditation and silence. Sit for a few moments and cultivate love. And, and I'm so amazed that at this point, this tool that I inherited that's in my toolbox is right there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I don't drink tomato juice and I don't read the paper, but <laughs> I kind of do what my father did. I, I, sort of, I, I carve this little space each day for being mm -hmm. in the me so I can be there more for the we. And, mm -hmm. and I am now really conscious of how at core 
it is an exercise in love hmm. so that I can be there more agile and helpful when more contentious moments happen the moment I turn on my phone or open my front door. You know, I was looking at the Lab Shul website, and it's just, it's really fun. Um, and I think it follows on, it's, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of an expression of the playful and serious forms that way of moving forward can take. Like, there's one post that's advice from Kermit. <laughs> yes. Last, and I don't know if you write these or who writes these. Last night, 15 Labshul co-creators answered their first ever community call to action to share their energy, excitement, and exasperation. In this moment when our political future feels uncertain, the resounding answer, connect. Or our sage Kermit the Frog says, someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. And I, I've been humming that song ever since because I still remember <laughs> learning that when my kids were small. And it's such a beautiful song. And I don't know. Well, I'm so happy to say that this is one of the few posts that I did not write. Okay. But I believe Rabbi Carey, who's part of our team now, did together yeah. with some of our team members. And my joy is that the language that I've tried to convey, that the branding, as you said, mm -hmm. is this very delicate combination of reverence and irreverence. Yeah. And it's because we are catering to a, a, a generations of all ages who are seeking spiritual meaning and who are a little burnt out and tired by, by cliche and by some of the religious uh, offerings and traditional trappings. And without being too... Um, too rude and too funny. Um, the language that I've been trying to wrestle with is is one that that dances that very thin line, mm -hmm. that very mm -hmm. tight rope between. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're we're loyal to the past and we're loyal to the to our audience, and we're finding the in between. And it's how to be cheeky without being cheesy, <laughs> right. and how to be That's profound, good. how to bring the right. sacred right. in many ways. I think we're we're starving for the sacred. In so many ways, and and I'll, you know, in, in in the Jewish world, there's this renaissance of various attempts to both bring social justice and human dignity and spirituality and practice and wisdom to the forefront. Yeah. And it does take rebranding, and hmm. it takes reimagining what we have to offer, um, and how we get to mix and match with other traditions. And that is a, you know, a historical precedent that I think. Uh, we are now waking up to yes. understand how radical it is that you and I are having this conversation and that Muslim leaders and Buddhist leaders and Zen leaders and Shinto leaders and indigenous, uh, we're all mixing and matching our tools. Yeah. And the trick is how do we keep and retain our indigenous wisdom while having this these labs and these conversations where we get to play and share and... <laughs> Expand the wheat. But I don't actually think that that, like that looks like it would be the challenge on the surface, but I don't, I don't think it often is because in really profound, the kind of paradox of, of, of authentic, profound interreligious connection, or I think connection across uh, meaningful boundaries, it, it, you don't, you don't give up the ground you stand on, right? You, the world becomes larger because you have seen this other and you, you may have an appreciation for them or, or curiosity about 
what they bring into the world, but you, it's also the ground beneath your feet is somehow richer and more interesting. I mean, that's so often if the way are, it goes. If you, if you are, if one is aware of the ground mm-hmm. beneath one's feet, right. I think one of the, where, where this post-ethnic opportunity and this interreligious dialogue becomes challenging is that for so many people of different faiths, the last century has not provided deep education and literacy of what it is that's so sacred and meaningful about our ground. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just taught a class yesterday about the origin of Christmas and Hanukkah that seems to me no-brainer that it comes from the winter solstice and it's an ancient pagan holiday about the depth of winter and our need for the miracle of light and joy and gifts and cholesterol and togetherness. And out of that <laughs> came these different traditions. And many of people in the room were mixed families of Jews and Christians or others and others and you know atheists on many levels. And they felt so uncomfortable because without having the connection to what it is that my Jewish or my Christian thing means, then all I have is a shallow, hallmarky rendition of it, which includes right, like right. a recipe for this and a recipe for that and something about a tree and something about a dreidel. And shopping. And so, and so, and so it, it's diluted. Mm-hmm. Um, where I agree with you that the, the beautiful challenge we have is on the one hand, giving people back the keys to their treasure chests. And, so that they, in and, fact, and, can meet others so they can something meet to offer so and for, something to for, learn right. and more to learn. Yes, yes. I think, I think that is the huge challenge for now mm-hmm. is to reconnect to what we have, mm-hmm. knowing that it needs some revisions, and then we can be face-to-face, eye-to-eye, mm-hmm. in intimacy and in, in transparent honesty with other, yeah. whether that other is our lover or a congregant or a neighbor. And then we honor each other's traditions and we're not threatened by the other. This either-or pattern has been what the West has lived by, certainly for Jews. And, you know, I go back to what you asked me about the Holocaust and the the trauma of so many memories of so many generations of being minority, of being othered, of being persecuted, of being not allowed to raise your head and sing your song. And now we're at an age where, at least for now, we are. And not only that, so many more people than ever are allowed to tap into the tradition. And that, of course, includes women and LGBT and people who live older and children who have more education. In many ways, the spiritual paths are enjoying a huge renaissance now. And I think one of the challenges is to make our traditions rich and exciting to people who are desperate for spirituality in this corporate capitalistic universe Mm -hmm. and at the same time transcend the either or to give people the permission to be in this both and fluidity where where we're living yeah where your hanukkah christmas kwanzaa uh, solstice thing is is not a messy smorgasbord with a stomach ache at the end mm-hmm. but um a a a sensitive collage yeah and you know to me the, again on the lab shul website um there's a write up about something that i heard about um the after um the election these meetings with muslim and jewish women 
Um, mm-hmm. Did you write this one? On Sunday, I sat, cried, and sang with 500 Muslim no, and that's Jewish Rabbi women at the sisterhood of Salam Shalom, yeah. the Salam mm-hmm. Shalom gathering. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a, it was a, it's a beautiful, it was a beautiful um, image, and very countercultural in a way, but also I think. It's the kind of thing that, as you say, is so new. I mean, if you really look at the sweep of history, so new in human history and might sound really counterintuitive that, you know, this this is also a product of the post 9-11 world um, and that, you know, and it, it, it's very much in contrast to the, the renewed language of the other um, that's out there in culture. And, yeah. and again... You know, interestingly, in some ways, a response to it. I think the searching for common ground in the face of this threat is remarkable. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the Friday after the elections, uh, we first of all, together with our friends at Arbit and other folks, a week before the election, decided to hold on November ninth a gathering in Washington Square Park, come what may to hold hands, to sing, to pray, to meditate, different religions, different people, to get over the, the, the painfulness of, of the election themselves. And then we found ourselves on November 9th with a primal scream um, and, and really powerful songs, and people stood there from all different religions, and it was about common ground. And the conversations that day were profound and so deeply moving. And I... Um, reached to a friend of mine in the Muslim community and said, how can we help? We understand the vulnerability. And she said, let me put you in touch with a, with a mosque on, in Midtown. And um, along with a few other people, I ended up in the mosque on Friday afternoon um, as there were at prayers. We stood outside with signs that said together against hate. And I was standing there with my, with my skull cap on my head and... Um, People were so moved. Like we weren't even thinking about it ahead of time. Just came and shook their hands and took photos and 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 just the notion that just a bunch of Jews are standing around a mosque and saying we're standing together and right. that was unthinkable before that. And I was invited into the mosque to say a few words to to the con- and I was, I'm like, why? Here I am inside a mosque, kneeling, praying, meditating with people. Um, this would not this would not have happened. Yeah. So what is the opportunity here to discover common ground, not in anti, but in for and in favor of enlarging our sense of human responsibility? And, the, you know, the, 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 the mystical or the, the ethical Jewish notion of we are each created in the divine image is the candle that is lit on my altar. And in many ways, I believe it is lit on many, many, many altars. But in some cases, the light just doesn't, isn't cast wide enough. And one of the challenges I will certainly say as a Jew right now is for us to understand in the 21st century, what is a Jew, who's in, who's out, how are we expanding and redefining the boundaries? And again, it goes back to the question of who's we. Because it's changing. And for some people, it's too fast and too radical mm-hmm. and too scary. And for others, it's too it's too nebulous. And for but others, it's too no slow, question. right? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. You know, and there's, there's so much wisdom in slow. Mm-hmm. You know, here mm-hmm. I am. It's 2000. 
17 almost. In 2006, the conservative movement, after almost a decade of deliberations and, and more even, decided to agree, decided to allow LGBT students to be admitted to the rabbinical seminary. And for about 15 years prior to that, I was toying with the idea of rabbi while being artist and, 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 and owning that hat and the storyteller hat. And when that decision came with its deliberative effort, with the fact that prices were paid and some people left the movement and left the legal uh, law committee over this issue, but others were welcomed in, I was so respectful of the slow and steady pace that some changes need. Mm -hmm. And that here we are a hundred years since women were able to vote in this country. And a century is and is not a long time. And I come from a long, long tradition of thousands of years of people trying to make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. Some of the changes are going to happen in my lifetime. Others I now know might not. Mm -hmm. um, but the question is what seeds do we keep on planting and what low-hanging fruit can we keep on plucking? Yeah. Um, and now I would say more than ever, as, as you said, we're in such a moment of uncertainty. Um, it feels like the call to invest in the local communal is essential. People need each other's face-to-face, hand-to-hand, while at the same time not losing sight of the bigger we, the yeah. global we, yeah. the responsibility and to I other, think, which is so hard. Right, and figuring out how to do that, right? How to, how to do both of how to invest in both of those ways of being in the world and and... And we need each other to figure it out because it's, it's huge. It's a lot to ask, right? It's a lot yeah. to ask with this, this history we have as a species and what feels instinctive to us, even when yeah. it flies in the face of what we deeply want. What, you know, and, and in fact, mm -hmm. you know, that our DNA is able to handle 150 names or so, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. we do have the sort of tribal sense that of, of, of the local and the intimate and the immediate, right. and yet we got thousands of Facebook friends, mm -hmm. and we are simultaneously called to have true empathy and compassion to what happened yesterday in Berlin, mm -hmm. and in Ankara, mm -hmm. and in Aleppo, mm -hmm. and in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and in Jerusalem, and it's all in my feed, and it's all people I know, and my little homo sapient brain and heart isn't built to handle this yeah. level of traffic. Yeah, that's right. So I either shut down and I only focus on my peeps or I find some way to navigate and to negotiate what is what is fidelity and what is responsibility and how do I have the circles of intimacy and containers of we that, that sustain me and I can be helpful with and how, in other ways, can I be an agent of of growth in in a larger scale in this in this global economy where we're invi invited to be part of? Um, it's huge. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. You, you know, I'll, I'll just say briefly one of the, one of the the projects that I'm really focusing on now is I don't know if you want to go that way, but. There's always the editing room floor. Um, so when I when I graduated the seminary uh, last year, the big milestone was that the Jewish the Jewish theological seminary and the conservative movement, as of now, do not enable uh, 
their ordained rabbis to officiate weddings between Jews and people of other faiths. Yeah, yeah I read some Intermarriage is the that, big yeah. taboo, the yeah. big hot potato on the table. About 71% of American Jews, according to the most recent uh, the Pew survey, choose to marry someone of other faith who would most likely not convert. And so assimilation or intermarriage or other names for it is, is really the big thing that keeps a lot of Jews up at night. Um, I had been officiating interfaith weddings prior to my rabbinic ordination, and I created a whole process of either uh, of, of both and and learning each other's traditions and deciding to focus on the Jewish if that's what people wanted, and I was able to represent Judaism under their canopy. Um, and upon graduate, and I decided, and I had to stop when I started the seminary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, when I graduated, I decided that I will abide by the decision of the movement and take a year or so to explore my position in depth and research a an alternative, a sort of a historical legalistic option that expands the definition of who's Jewish and embraces people who are marrying those who are Jewish and not necessarily choosing to convert. It's sort of the third category between Jew and non-Jew that has historical precedent. Um, And I declared that I will not be officiating any weddings until I can officiate all weddings. And that was earlier this summer, a few months ago. So I'm in the middle of this fascinating research, which is exactly about this redefinition of what is we. Hmm. And there Hmm. are people in the Jewish community who are enthralled and looking forward to this research and being part of more strategies and and ways to be positive and inclusive. And there are people who are extremely um, threatened and and, um, worried about this option. Because again, it could be very, um, it it could dilute. And on the other hand, it could expand and celebrate what is already happening. And and that and that's you know like the baby in the bathwater is where the the responsibility of being a a a a, a caretaker of such a fragile old tradition yeah. as it evolves in this postmodern age is um, at times it really feels like a very um, beautiful and complicated task. But you know I I mean I also look at I think about you being a rabbi now and that was not. Again, that was a winding path. Um, I still like this line, going from being somebody who thought artists were the new rabbis to, to being to rabbis or the new artists. A rabbi of a congregation which is God-optional, you know, some might see that as certainly, that is kind of the ultimate contrast. I mean, how do you, theologically, spiritually, how do you... Uh, hold that together. I'll go back for a moment to the night of the elections. I was in Columbus, Ohio, in the backyard of a house where many, many uh, volunteers and activists were gradually walking away from the screens. And I was in the backyard, and there was a really big tree there, and I'm closing my eyes and trying to think, how, what? And a voice came to me, a vision, if you'd like, and it was the divine in her manifestation as a tree. And she said to me, I am a tree. I am an old, 
old, old tree. I am bigger than you can imagine. My roots go deeper than deep. My branches go higher than high. And you are part of this tree. And you are now to be like me, with me, standing strong, rooted in the ground, branches holding on to others against the storm. I've been here from the very beginning. I'll be here till the end of time. You are this tree of life. Hmm. And, you know, I was absolutely sober <laughs> and standing in the backyard asking for assurance from the mystery of being that there is meaning and there is resonance and there is context and there is hope. And whether I... Whatever it is I tapped into, that was a powerful assurance, and I shared it the following day in Washington Square Park with people, and I've come back to it a few times since. The, the notion of, of the tree, the tree of the world, the tree of life, so central to the Jewish mythology yeah, and such vocabulary. such a biblical image, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's so powerful, the yeah. tree of life, the yeah. tree, the big tree of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel that it's um, about showing and not telling and it's about uh, coming from the heart not everyone loves and would love what I have to offer I learned that as a performer earlier on you're going to look at a room full of people someone's going to frown don't take it personally focus on the one who's smiling <laughs> and um, I'm, I am I am co-creating a, a a Jewish and a Jewish and a spiritual conversation that I consider to be triage at this point. This is first aid mm. for spiritual seekers who are very, very thirsty. Mm. And the scaffolding that we're building around the spiritual language, the Jewish vocabulary, the retrieval of the calendar, the return to a connection to the sense of self and other to retranslating and reinterpreting our um, inherited stories and traditions in ways that will really be meaningful to people. That's not cliche. That's not autopilot. That is a discipline for growth. That's the intention. And whether we create a, a Sabbath ritual that winks and has laughs and has beautiful music and seems untraditional to people who are used to a very type of traditional trope, I think by now people know that we're not coming from anti. We're not coming from, um, you know, the bad kids. We're coming from the place of careful and creative and playful retrieval. And it's not everybody's cup of tea, Yeah, you know? Yeah. My mom, my 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 mother came for my ordination back in May, and we had went back and forth for weeks whether she'll be with us for the Sabbath morning practice. My mother is observant and religious, and she prays in a synagogue where women and men sit separately, and there's no music and there's no electricity, and certainly no, you know, priests and vicars on the stage. And I said, well, it's going to be that kind of Shabbat. There's going to be a lot of music. There's going to be a lot of faith leaders. There's going to be all of us sitting together. And and I'd love you to be there. And um, and she came to her great credit and said to me later, I was very moved. This is absolutely not my cup of tea. I will not be back. 
But I love what you did. I'm looking around and there's hundreds of people who are in tears, who are dancing, mm-hmm. who are praying, who are delighted to be part of this tradition. Otherwise, they would not have had a place to, mm-hmm. to tap into the sacred. So my mom is not my audience. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've done enough therapy to deal with that. <laughs> Oh, okay. This has been just so beautiful. It's beautiful. We're going to end with your mother, which pleases me as a mother. Thank you. My mother mm-hmm. is a huge influence in my life. I yeah. think I began talking about yeah. Sabbath and flowers and mm-hmm. her Yes, you did. Her spirituality. She, she framed the entire thing. Yeah. I mean, my mother and the mother, mm-hmm. I, I really feel, you know, I, I joke that I'm not really a Hebrew, I'm a Shebrew. And... Uh, <laughs> I, that's a branding that one day I want to do something with. Um, I do feel we're living at this moment. Hmm? You might have to bring back Hadassah. You know, mm. that is a big question. Mm-hmm. I almost brought her back during the election mm. season to... Uh, there's a testimonial she was going to make there, and, and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm working with... Have you seen the show Transparent? Yes. So, oh yes, of course. Yeah, we, you put we me in touch with, Joel with Jill. Yeah, and right. so we have this we have this lively correspondence now about love and how we're going to activate it. Yes, she yes. is big on that, and I and I, yeah. I sent her some of the notes from our from our meeting yeah. uh, back in Minneapolis. So I, I've been friendly with her for years, mm-hmm. and I've been helping a little bit thinking about some of the issues for Transparent. And she just took her writers to Israel. Mm. Um, oh right, to, she wrote me from Israel. I didn't. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. I think I'm no. Not spilling any Amazon beans, but uh, season four is going to be shot <laughs> primarily in Israel. Okay. Um, and Jill and I were there and walking around and really thinking about what does it mean to bring this sort of fluid, transgender, religious fluidity into this holy land, and whether it's the Western Wall or whether it's Palestine, and and how love can come at the forefront here instead of the fear and the boundaries. And it's a lot about the notion of the feminine divine, that sense of both and as opposed to the either or. Yeah, here's something she and wrote about you um, uh-uh. okay. in an interview. She said, uh, she talked about speaking with you daily. I think somebody was asking her about her inspiration and her grounding. And she said, Rabbi Amchai Laulavi, a God-optional, patriarchy-toppling Jewish modern mind. There's a mandate among religious and spiritual thinkers to be thinking about the binary, the gendered, the feminist, the goddess. And Amchai reminds me of that every day. Isn't that lovely? Wow. What a quote. Yay. (laughs) Um, I'm so proud of Jill. I love what she's doing. Mm -hmm. I think it's revolutionary. We have Mm -hmm. a responsibility to like spread that light and topple. Mm-hmm. And I think now more than ever, through media, through the work you do, through the work she does, I'm hoping through the the work I do, more people will simply wake up to what is possible and that we've been sold and told a spiritual and religious reality that doesn't quite jive with our deepest sense of need right now. Mm-hmm. And um, there is room and need to, um, yeah, I'll say it again, to rebrand mm-hmm. in a deep way. Mm, thank you so much. Thank you. It's what been an honor just and fabulous. really a privilege. Oh, well, I'm excited to put this on the air. I knew it would be fantastic, but it's um, still been just full of surprises and beauty. So 
Lily will stay in touch with you about what's happening, and we have our cameras here. I've never been interviewed; just I've never been uh, filmed. Oh, just you're being doing filmed this. as well. Yes, I'm being filmed oh. doing, and oh, I did not know I, and that. unfortunately, okay. this colleague here has just heard the least interesting half of the conversation. <laughs> no, well, if you could have, well, listen, if you think this was good, <laughs> yeah, so. Thank you for for uh, entertaining the the crew. Yeah, the My concept. Pleasure. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. Um, may this be one of many many deep conversations. Yes, and well, hand absolutely. holding face to face. Well, we have to. We part. we're part of this love movement together, so we're going to keep yeah. doing that, right? Amen. Okay. All right. Thank you, you have so a beautiful much. rest of the day. All right. Yeah. Happy holiday. You too. Beautiful, beautiful, meaningful lights. Thank you. And may tomorrow's longest night of the year bring enormous light for you and your family and okay. you everyone too. who you touch so beautifully. You, you too. Yeah. Bye-bye. I will see you soon. Take care. Take care. Bye.